Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. Lord, we meditate upon the truth that you are and that you are holy and powerful, majestic and righteous, merciful and loving, and that you are ours. You told us to call you Father, Abba. You call us your prized possession. And Lord, we acknowledge it's not because of anything in us that would draw you to us. It is purely your free grace. And for that, we give you praise. Oh Lord, I pray in this time of worship, as our hearts have already been lifted heavenward by the ministry of the choir and the songs we've been singing together, I pray that we will be open to your spirit, speaking to our hearts through the word of God, and that we would truly be transformed into the image of the one, our elder brother, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Once in a blue moon is a phrase I used to hear growing up, an English idiom, that is supposed to speak and reflect of something that is rather rare. That's as rare as a blue moon, once in a blue moon. A blue moon, I found out, is actually one of the 10 rarest astronomical events that take place. But it is not the most rare. A blue moon apparently comes around about every two years, maybe a little bit longer. And again, I'm told it's because of those colored particles in the atmosphere that gives the appearance that the moon has turned blue. Maybe we should say once in a Halley's Comet, because that comes every 75 years far more rare. It's interesting how we evaluate life and what is common and what is unique, what happens often, and what is rare. I think in the life of a believer, or let's say just in the life of humans in general, something that is extremely rare is contentment. It was Benjamin Franklin who wrote many years ago, what makes a, a who is rich, answering the question himself, he said, he who is content. And who is content, answering the question himself, he said, nobody. <laughs> and that's maybe closer to the truth than we would like to believe. Contentment. If it is indeed so rare, then we must put ourselves after it, like searching for that precious jewel, willing to sell the field to find the prize. Back in 1648, a Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs wrote an excellent treatise called The Jewel, the Christian Jewel, the Rare Christian Jewel of Contentment. And he wrote 300 pages on how we need to be content. Hmm. 
So when we turn to our study in the book of Hebrews, that is the subject that the author brings up in his very last chapter, which seems somewhat random, but is not. He's reflecting back on things that have been said before, and he wants us to be content. Now what he's going to do is he's going to talk about desires that destroy us. And we'll begin with verse 5. Think about that, desires that can destroy us. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. We'll stop right there. The first desire, and there are two, that can destroy us is this hunger for more, covetousness. I want more than what I have. And in this particular case, uh, money is mentioned. Those whose lives are not free from the passion and lust and drive to get more money. Could we explain our society with any better words? At least for many. And you don't have to have a lot of money to want more money. In fact, those who don't have money certainly want more, but those who have money want even more than what they have. And this desire begins to consume us. Now what is interesting in this book of Hebrews is that if you were to go back to chapter 10, the people that the writer is addressing once willingly, gladly gave up their possessions. Let me read it to you, 1032. Remember those early days? After you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. And because of your identification with them, you suffered along with those in prison. Get this. And you joyfully or gladly accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you had better lasting possessions elsewhere. Wow. Now that was their attitude at one time, but we all know that they've moved away from that attitude, and that's why they're being addressed in this epistle we call to the Hebrews. To the Hebrews who believed in Jesus, but now are thinking of chucking Jesus and going back to their old system of works and sacrifices and laws. And so to them he must say, make sure that you are free from the love of money. It's something that binds us. It's something that controls us. And sometimes we don't even know it. Now there are many Old Testament warnings concerning this. I think of the words of Job, Job 31. He said, if I have put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my wealth, the fortune my hands have gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance, the moon moving in its splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed, and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, worship, then these also would be sins to be judged for what I would have been unfaithful to God on high. 
The book of Proverbs is replete with warnings. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Don't trust them. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, a portion of scripture we read a moment ago, some people think that godliness is a means to gain money. Paul says that's not the case. But if you are godly and content, that is profitable. Contentment. The things that we pursue are transitory and therefore can never give to us deep satisfaction because we have no idea whether we'll be here today or gone tomorrow. They will break, eaten by the moth, corrupted by the rust, taken by the robber, and we have nothing if that's where our trust is. Even if our trust is in good people, they will be taken from us. So put your trust in God. That's his point. Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money will never have enough. <laughs> whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And this is vanity. It was said of Alexander the Great after he had conquered all the kingdoms of the world that he sat on his throne and cried. Someone said, why are you crying? He said, because there are no more worlds to conquer. I want more. You and I look at the possessions we have and at times we are grateful for them, but we often say to God, I want more. Whether it's money or power or position, we're not content with what we have. I love Paul's words in the book of Philippians. Now mind you, he was in prison. And he was writing to a church to thank them for their support, much like we saw Eddie Passmore thanking us for our support uh, for their particular ministry in Mexico. Paul said to the Philippians, chapter four, verse 10, I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me. I know you always have been, but you didn't have opportunity. And I'm not saying this because I'm complaining. No, I've learned, verse 11, that whatever need I'm in, I am content with whatever I have. Whatever state I am in, the old translation says, whatever state I am in. But that's a, that's a good verse for us in Michigan in the winter. <laughs> whatever state I am in, therewith I should, of course that's not what it's referring to, it's referring to the condition that you are in, and whatever condition, be content. Paul said, I know how to have abundance, and I know how to have nothing, and it doesn't make any difference. I'm content in every situation. Christians in America are often content people when they are comfortable people. 
Yeah, if we lose our comforts, we lose our contentment. And we're living in a world economically, politically, where many of the soft things that we have enjoyed, thinking they are necessities, could easily be taken from us. And then where will our content be? It flies out with that which we love so much. I heard a comedian, and I won't try to repeat the joke, but he was talking about sometimes parents are so hard. and He said, uh, he saw a dad one time at a park and a little kid is holding a balloon. And you know, the balloon, <laughs> got caught by the air and was whisked away into the heavens and the little kid's crying out, my balloon, my balloon. And the dad said, well, don't get so upset with that balloon. That's nothing. Stop your crying. To which the comedian said, suppose that dad's billfold was connected to the balloon. <laughs> and it was whisked away by the air. I want my money. I want, settle down, it's only money. Oh, we don't know what content is. We're too comfortable. I'm afraid. And I'm including myself in this. A Christian couple was ministering in Europe years ago. I think it was during the Iron Curtain and they came to bring some resources to the believers who were meeting in secret in the woods. And these Christians, well-meaning, said to those believers, listen, we want you to know that we are supporting you, we are praying for you, that God will protect you and keep you pure. And one of the Christians said, well, we appreciate that, but uh, we are praying for you Americans too. We feel that Christians in America need more prayer than we do. You see, in Eastern Europe, we're suffering, but you in America are very comfortable and it's always harder to be a good Christian when you are comfortable. Ouch. So, be freed from your devotion and passion for things that cannot satisfy like money. That's a desire that will destroy you. And Paul explains it in 1 Timothy. If you have a love for money, that's the root of all kinds of evil because that passion, not that money is evil, but loving it is and worshiping it is and it will develop all kinds of other sins to your own destruction. There's another, another passion here that will indeed destroy us and it's the idea of fear. That's verse 6. And it's just mentioned briefly, we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. So I extract from these two verses two problems for the present Christians in that day and for us today. We love things and we hunger for more and we're constantly in fear. What were they afraid of? Not having enough money. <laughs> What were they afraid of? The future, persecution, it's the fear of man that was gripping their soul, and fear is just 
as enslaving as a passion for something that does not satisfy. You're under its control. And the devil loves this. He calls a love for money the American dream. Doesn't that sound a lot better? They were controlled by fear instead of being committed to the Lord. Contentment is what we need. So those are the dangers that could destroy us. Now let's look at the God who can deliver us or save us. And we'll just go back to those same two verses and flesh them out. So the first one, keep yourselves, your lives, free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's the command. Why should we be content with what we have? Because God said, and this is a quotation from Joshua chapter one, when Joshua was gaining the authority and the leadership of the nation of Israel and taking them into the Holy Land, what an intimidating task. And God said to him, Joshua, never will I leave you and never will I abandon you. In other words, let God be enough. Be content with what you have, and you have God. Oh, I, I know that that almost sounds like a cliche, and yeah, I, I understand it. We, uh, we all believe that, but let, let's go beyond that. No, don't go beyond that. Because you'll never be content unless your contentment is in something that cannot be changed, lost, stolen, corrupted. And the only thing, the only one who cannot change is God. What does it say a few verses later? Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Leave him and you guys are in big trouble because there's nothing constant like Christ. Isn't it a shameful contradiction when we as Christians claim to possess better things but always want more? <laughs> I have eternal life by the grace of God. I have peace with God and my sins are forgiven. We claim better things but I still want more. Really. Now, proper ambition does not contradict Contentment. Contentment is not fatalistic. Not this attitude, well, you know, que sera, sera, what will be, will be, I, I'm just going to be content. No, contentment is a joyful peace and rest in the sovereign God who is there. He's emphasizing his presence. We are content in the presence of God. That's the key. Content with him being close by. He is all I need. Let me give you a definition from Jeremiah's, Jeremiah Burroughs. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to 
and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal of every situation. That's a great definition, I'll read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in, and I would say God's presence, as well as God's fatherly disposal, control of every situation. There was a contented bishop many years ago when someone said to him, what is your secret? He said, it consists in nothing more than making the right use of my eyes. In whatever state I am in, and whatever I see that confronts me, first I look up to heaven and remember that my principal business here in this life is to get there. <laughs> my principal business in life is to get there. In other words, he was shifting his focus from this world, love not the world nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But shift your eyes heavenward. As it says in Colossians, where your treasures are. Look to the one who rules the universe, and he's yours. Let God be enough. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's nothing on earth I desire beside you and with you. I am really happy. Said the old woman who sat down to a piece of bread in a poor English cottage with only water to drink. She lifted up her eyes to heaven and said, oh my, all of this and God too. Thank you. There's your attitude. I confess to you I'm too attached to things. And sometimes God says, let me give you a lesson. Let me take that thing away. Sometimes I confess I'm too attached to people. And at times God has taken those people away. In our community at Graham Church, Pastor Mike Hickson died yesterday of a heart attack. And his poor wife, they just lost a child within this year. And I cannot imagine. But no one can say to him, what are you doing? And he does all things well. And all things work together. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to the, those who are called according to his purpose. And so I must love him. And it's a privilege to do so. And I must trust him and live with a contented heart. I'm content in his presence he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Very interesting. It's a, it's a word 
Same word that Paul used in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he said, I'm persecuted but not abandoned. God not forsaking us does not mean that God will make everything happy for us. Persecuted. But I'm not abandoned. He is with me. So I am content in his presence and I am confident in his promise. Now you'll notice in verse 6 that there's another Old Testament scripture, not only from Joshua 1, this time from Psalm 118, verse 6. So we may say boldly, or may we may say confidently, who are we saying this to? I think probably to others, but I think maybe primarily to ourselves. I may say to my weak heart, the Lord is my helper. Presence implies assistance. I am with you, God says. Why are you with me? To help you. The Lord is my helper. (laughs) Why should I be afraid? What can a mere mortal do to me? Kill me? Yeah, they can do that. They can take my life, but they cannot take my God. They can take my possessions, but God will give me all I need. And he's already given me life that never, ever ends. My faith and trust is in him. Discontent believes that God has kept something back from me that is for my good. I think it would be for my good. And therefore, I am unhappy. Contentment says, All that God has given to me is good, and what he's withheld from me, there is a reason, and I will rejoice. Covetousness is born of doubt. Contentment is a child of faith. And I am confident in God's promise. He said, I will never abandon you, and he won't. He said, I will will be with you, and he will. He said, I am there to help, and he does. Why should I be afraid? The saints of old who stood before heathen governors and kings without a tremble were bold because they stood before God. What can you do to me? Kill me? Yes. That only gets me to heaven sooner. I will trust in God. Speak boldly. God is the king of the kingdom that cannot be shaken and everything else is shaken. A woman once said to D.L. Moody, I found a promise that really helps me. She quoted Psalm 56 in verse three. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. Moody replied, that's, that's good, but I found a better one. It's from Isaiah 12, verse two. I will trust and not be afraid. Now they're both good promises, but wouldn't it be great to eliminate fear? By the conscious, by the development of the conscious understanding of God's presence and help? 
and to communicate with him in such a way that it is just natural to trust him. John Stuart Mill said, I've learned to seek my happiness by limiting my desires rather than in attempting to satisfy them. And wealth consists in not having great possessions, but few wants. And contentment lies in understanding God is with you and he will help you. And that's all you need. A man once talked about his brother Kevin who was a special needs boy. One time at home, this man was walking by Kevin, his brother's bedroom at night and heard him pray and it made him smile. Kevin was functioning at the level of about a seven-year-old, but he was 6'2 and weighed over 200 pounds. That's the only thing in him that looked like an adult. Kevin was on his knees praying as he did every day. God, are you there? Where are you? And then his brother heard him say, oh, I see, you're under the bed. And his brother went away smiling. It was a source of amusement that night. But long after the humor passed, he began to think of Kevin living in a far different world than his own, both physically and spiritually. Kevin had a rather monotonous life. He was up before dawn each day. He then got on a bus and went to a workshop for the disabled, came home, walked their cocker spaniel, then sat down to a breakfast of, or dinner of mac and cheese every night, and then finally went to bed where he said his prayers. The only variation is on Friday when he would do the laundry for the whole family. He would gather up the laundry, hover over the washing machine, delighted in how it worked. Couldn't wait to move it from the washing machine to the dryer like an excited child. Oh, but his favorite day was Saturday because on Saturday, that's when his dad took him to the airport to watch the planes fly away and land. Kevin loudly speculated the destination of each passenger inside. That one's going to Chicago. That one's going to Detroit. And he loved the day with his dad. He doesn't know what discontentment is, his brother said. His life is simple. No entanglements of wealth or power. Doesn't care about the brand of clothes he wears, the food he eats. His needs have been met, and he never worries that someday they may not be. His hands are diligent. He's never more happy than when he's working. He's not obsessed with work or the work of others or what people think of him. His heart is pure. He still believes everyone tells the truth. It promises must be kept. And when you are wrong, you should apologize instead of fighting. Free from pride, unconcerned with appearance. Kevin's not afraid to cry when he's hurt or when he's angry. He's always transparent and sincere and always seems to trust God. 
not confined to the intellectual reasonings and doubts that some have in Christ. He comes as a child. He seems to know God, to really be friends with God on a level that I know nothing about. God seems to be his closest companion, and he trusts him. In my moments of doubt and frustration with my faith, I envy the security that Kevin has. It is then that I'm almost willing to admit that he has some divine knowledge that rises above my mortal questions. It is then I realize that perhaps he's not the one with the handicap. I am. My obligations, my fear, my pride, my circumstance become my disabilities when I don't trust God to care for them. And who knows, maybe Kevin comprehends things I could never learn. After all, he spent his whole life in that kind of innocence, praying after dark, soaking up the goodness and presence and love of God. And one day when the mysteries of heaven's, heaven are open and we're all amazed at how good God was and close to us and merciful, I'll realize that God heard the simple prayer of a boy who believed that God lived under his bed. And he won't be surprised at all. Let's pray. Lord, there is no contentment like contentment in Christ. There is no one that can satisfy the hungry heart like the bread of life and quench the thirsty soul like the Lord Jesus, the water of life. And too long we've been pursuing empty cisterns that cannot satisfy instead of drinking from streams of living water. Oh God, forgive us for not being content in you and destroying our lives by wanting things and afraid of people when God Almighty is our refuge. Open our eyes that we might see like Kevin does. In your name we pray, amen.